Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 145. It is a psalm that we have already sung this morning as our hymn of praise. Carvel uh, wrote for us this hymn as a part of our hymns uh, project. Uh, and during our time of invitation and discipleship, I want to say a little bit more about uh, the Psalms Project and tell you where you can find uh, those hymns online, as well as many other resources that we have for you. Um, so now as we prepare to hear God's word to us this morning, let us join our hearts together in prayer. Almighty, gracious Father, a true understanding of your holy word helps us to grow in maturity in the salvation you so freely offer in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Grant then that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and grasp your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all eagerness to your praise and honor. Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord. It is written, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give, you, give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion in, d endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy to the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears, also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Over the past few months, I have preached on several of the Psalms. My reason for doing this is twofold. 
First, the Psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. And this is certainly a time in history that we should be entrenched in prayer. There's no better way to pray than to allow God's word to be our God. And what we find in the Psalms are prayers that cover every human emotion from the heights of joy and delight to the depths of despair. They express the excitement and joy of being in God's holy presence as well as the agony of feeling abandoned by God. They have words for when we feel that everything is going our way and also when we feel like our sorrow or our enemies are sure to overwhelm us. They provide prayers of confession and expressions of contrition. I've not found a moment in my life that I can't turn to the Psalms and find language to articulate what I'm feeling. Second, the Psalms are not only prayers, but they are songs written for the purpose of worship. The Psalms then serve as the hymn book of the Bible. And since we want to ensure that our worship is guided by God's word, the Psalms provide for us a wonderful resource. They give to us language to sing praise to God, to sing of God's majesty and glory, to sing our longing of knowing his presence, to sing our thanksgiving for his goodness and mercy. So the Psalms are a wonderful place in the Bible to be spending some time during this pandemic. And by the way, there are wonderful resources available to you online as you study and meditate on the Psalms. For instance, you could finish the Ligonier study that we had done, a few of the Psalms um, at Kirk Covenant. It's called Loving the Psalms by Robert Godfrey. You can also access commentaries on the Psalms by uh, great leaders in our faith like John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon. And with that said, let's get into our psalm this morning. Psalm 145 is one of the many songs of praise that we find in the book of Psalms. It is not just any song of praise, though. It serves as a sort of introduction to the final few psalms of the book of Psalms, all of which are considered songs of praise. Not only this, Psalm 145 is the final psalm listed as a psalm of David. And boy, oh boy, is it a grand finale. If we were looking at it in the Hebrew language, we would notice that it is one of the acrostic psalms, meaning that the first letter of each line of the psalm goes through the Hebrew alphabet. It begins with Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and continues on each line beginning with the next successive letter until it reaches the end of the Hebrew alphabet, Tav. Now, if any of you are Hebrew scholars then you know that there are 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, but only 21 verses of this psalm. And this is because, like the other acrostic psalms, this one is imperfect. It leaves out the letter N of the Hebrew alphabet. Nevertheless, it serves as a sort of A to Z of praising God. 
It serves as an A to Z of praising God. And without knowing any Hebrew at all, you can notice pretty quickly that David uses every word that he can think of to tell us of how we are to praise God. In just the first few verses, you see the words extol, bless, praise, command, declare, on and on he goes. Each of these words carrying a different connotation. When we extol the Lord, for instance, we tell of how great he is. When we bless the Lord, we speak well of his generosity. When we praise the Lord, we glorify him for his magnificent qualities. When we commend the Lord, we speak highly of him. There are so many words that can rightly be used as expressions of our worship of God. And this exhaustive list of words in Psalm 145 is evidence of the lengths that we should go to in our worship of God. It is representative of his worthiness of all of our praise. And and the psalm certainly gives us a lot to think about in this regard. So this morning, I want to lift up just a couple of highlights about the psalm, a couple of big ideas, if you will. And my hope is that as we meditate on this psalm, it will not only help us to stand in awe of God Almighty, but it will also make our praying and our singing of the psalm richer and all the more meaningful. So the first big idea I want to lift up about the psalm is that our praise should seek to represent the level of God's greatness. Our praise should seek to represent the level of God's greatness. Something that I mentioned sort of in passing last Sunday was that all of our worship should be controlled by and in conformity to who God is, who God has revealed himself to be. And this psalm really provides a nice demonstration of some of the implications of this aspect of our worship both in the means and in the substance of our praise. So, for instance, in the very first verse of the psalm, David states that he will bless the name of God forever and ever. Why is God to be worshipped forever and ever? Because God is eternal. And if God is eternal, if God knows no end, then our praise of him should know no end. As long as God exists, so should our praise of him. Should our worship of God then be limited to only one day a week? Of course not. How often are we to praise God? Verse 2, every day I will bless you and praise your name. Every day God's Praise should be on our tongues and demonstrated in our lives. As Psalm 146 puts it, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Or as Psalm 150 puts it, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. As long as we have breath in our lungs, we should be praising God because he is worthy of our unceasing praise. 
And this is what we see when we get a glimpse into the heavenly realm. We see the heavenly host offering God unceasing praise like in Revelation 4, which states, Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then it states, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We are to join in on this unceasing praise that the heavenly host and the saints that have gone before us are offering God continually around his throne. But it isn't just because God is eternal that we should praise him unceasingly. It is also because God is infinite in his greatness. Therefore, our worship should seek to praise God for all of who he is by his very nature. Verse 3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. There is no aspect of God which is not worthy of our praise. And this psalm focuses on several aspects of God's nature on which we should meditate and for which we should give him praise. The most prominent among these is that God is our king, which is really the main theme of the psalm. Throughout the psalm, you find kingdom language as David recognizes God's kingship over all of creation. And the significance Significance of this is profound. Here we have the king, David, saying that God is the true king. God is the one who is truly majestic. As John Calvin notes, in calling God his king, David gives both himself and other, other earthly princes their proper place and does not allow any earthly distinctions to interfere with the glory due to God. And so we should pay careful attention to what the psalm is saying about God's rule. It tells us that God is a mighty ruler. Verse 4 states that we shall declare your mighty acts. God is a God of strength and power. And there has been evidence of this throughout all of history, beginning with his creating all things from nothing simply by speaking them into being. But even as he is almighty, he is also gracious and merciful. He has demonstrated that he is fiercely loyal to his people through his covenant faithfulness. In other words, whatever he has promised, he has fulfilled. He has been rich in love toward them, even when they have strayed and acted in ways opposed to him. And this has especially been the case in his deliverance of his people from their slavery in Egypt, in his guiding them through the wilderness to the promised land. 
So God is not just a mighty king. He is also a gracious redeemer. In verse 5, David says, Oh, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. The Hebrew for wondrous works carries a very specific connotation of the Exodus event. We see the same language in places like Exodus 3.20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Israel with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he, Pharaoh, will let you go. Or Psalm 106, where it says, They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. We see the language of awesome deeds in Psalm 145 as well in verse 6. In delivering his people from Egypt, God worked in such a way as to inspire both fear and awe. Not only in Israel, but in the surrounding nations. And so we see in this psalm that God is not just a mighty king and a gracious redeemer. He is also a just judge. Verse 19 tells us that God fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. In verse 20, though, we read, The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. God proves himself to be righteous in this way. Sin is not ignored, as I stated last week. Those who stand in opposition to the Lord and transgress his law unrepentantly will be punished and put in their place. And dearly beloved, how much more does God reveal these things, that these things are true of himself through the person of Jesus Christ? In him, God has come down to save his people from their sin. The exalted one by whom all things came into being has humbled himself by taking on human flesh. He has heard our cries and delivered us from a slavery to sin and death in order that he might bring us into the true promised land, eternal life in his holy presence. And he did this while we were yet his enemies. And he did this with perfect righteousness, making atonement for the sins of the many by pouring out his wrath on his only son, the perfect sacrifice on Calvary's cross. But not only this, this past Thursday, the Church Universal celebrated the ascension of Jesus Christ. When we remember that Jesus, having accomplished his great work of redemption, Return to his heavenly father to sit at his right hand. So it is not only the virgin birth, the perfect life, the atoning death, the life-giving resurrection. It is also the reality that he once again sits on his heavenly throne where he reigns in power as king of all creation and where he will one day crush all of his enemies under his feet. Therefore, in Jesus Christ, we see on full display the might and graciousness and justice of our God. And Psalm 145 helps us to acknowledge and praise God in who he is as we know him to be in Jesus Christ. 
before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And therefore, because of who God is in Jesus Christ, how much more shall we praise him with this sort of language that we're given in Psalm 145? But this psalm also points to God as our generous provider. Jesus reminds us that if we have a, heaven in, a Father in heaven who cares for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, then how much more will he care for us, his beloved children? David proclaims the same truth here in Psalm 145. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. In his rule over all of creation, the Lord is in many ways indiscriminate in his lavish care. He provides for and sustains all that he has made, even as he particularly gives himself to those who fear him and love him by hearing their cries, saving them, and preserving them. As Psalm 104 also states, all creation looks to God. And God gives to them their food in due season. Psalm 104 continues, when you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. So as one commentator puts it, Yahweh's beneficence is neither ill-timed nor begrudgingly parceled out, but instead reflects his character, gracious, compassionate, and good. We would do well then to remember not only the ways in which we have seen his almighty hand at work, the ways in which we have experienced his gracious redemption and the confidence we have in his just judgments, but also we would do well to remember God's generous provision in our lives. And if we would remember these things continually before him, then surely these meditations on God's goodness would lead our hearts to gratefully and worthily worship him for who he has revealed himself to be, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Charles Spurgeon writes, worship should be somewhat like its object. Great praise for a great God. There is no part of Jehovah's greatness which is not worthy of our great praise Praise may be said to be great when the song contains great matter, when the hearts producing it are intensely fervent, when large numbers unite in grand acclaim. No chorus is too loud, no orchestra too large, no psalm too lofty for lauding the Lord of hosts. We should then, as Psalm 150 encourages Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. And yet there are many aspects of God that are simply unknowable. Verse 3 states, God is the Lord, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. But it also acknowledges his greatness is unsearchable. God is far beyond our comprehension. So even as scripture reveals to us God's character in nature, he is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is creator, redeemer, sustainer. He is king and judge over all. He is our refuge and strong fortress. He is our heavenly father. He is our good shepherd. 
the reality of God's being is not limited to what we can know of him. We should remember that our minds are finite and God is infinite. And so as we worship him, we should not be attempting to put him into a box that our minds can comprehend. Rather, in our worship, we should be bumping up against his mysterious incomprehensibility. And this should spur us to praise him all the more. As John Calvin writes, in speaking of the greatness of God as unmeasurable, David indicates that we only praise God aright when we are filled and overwhelmed with an ecstatic admiration of the immensity of his power. This admiration will form the fountain from which our just praises of him will proceed according to the measure of our capacity. And this is a very important lesson for us. If our worship of God is to be informed, we must think carefully and clearly about who this God is that we are worshiping. And we must seek to worship him in a manner that is in accordance with who he is, in a worthy manner of who he has revealed himself to be. But that doesn't mean that our worship is simply a cognitive activity. If our worship is informed by who God is, then we are not simply worshiping him as king, judge, redeemer, provider, shepherd, defender, refuge, etc. We are also worshiping the one who is beyond all our minds can fathom. Our worship, therefore, must in many ways go beyond simply being cognitive. At a point, we must move beyond what our minds can grasp. And we must move on to marvel in the depths of our soul at his majesty and greatness. And this might mean that we lift our voices in praise. It also might mean that we sit in silence before the vast mystery that is our God. Spurgeon puts it so well when he states, when we meditate most, and search most studiously, we shall still find ourselves surrounded with unknowable wonders, which will baffle all attempts to sing them worthily. The best adoration of the unsearchable is to own him to be so and close the eyes in reverence before the excessive light of his glory. Not all the minds of all the centuries shall suffice to search out the unsearchable riches of God. He is past finding out. And therefore, his deserved praise is still above and beyond all that we can render to him. So worship not only allows us to sing to God our praise, but also provides an opportunity for our souls to be lifted before God to rest in his eternal in mysterious presence. And this means that we should never, ever, 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 ever run out of things to praise God for. Even when our words become exhausted, we still praise him by sitting in reverent silence before him. Dearly beloved, 
how are we doing at worshiping God in this way, at recognizing the extent of his greatness, at acknowledging the glory due his name, and at seeking to bring him the honor and praise that he is rightly due. Psalm 145 helps us to reflect on these things. The second big idea that I hope we get from this psalm is that worship begins with us, but it shouldn't end with us. It should ever be moving outward. If our worship should match who God is, then it isn't just our worship of God that God is worthy of, right? God is worthy of the worship of all of his creation. And notice then how the psalm begins with the singular pronoun, I. I will extol you. I will bless you and praise your name. But very quickly, by verse 4, we read, One generation will commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And notice how the individual praise becomes intertwined with the praise of other who have joined in to worship God and then gives way to the many. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. I wonder how we are doing at inviting others, encouraging others to join us in the worship of God Almighty. There have been some who have argued that the church exists primarily for only two reasons. First and foremost, the church exists to worship God. Second, the church exists for mission, to proclaim the gospel abroad as a means of spreading God's kingdom throughout all the earth. But really, mission is for nothing more than to invite others to come and worship God. Mission will one day end even as worship will continue eternally. How have we been doing then in this aspect of our Christian discipleship? The Psalms show us again and again that praise must move out from us as individuals. And as the church of Jesus Christ created by God to glorify him in all the earth, it is drastically important that we invite and encourage others to join us in praising the God who has delivered us from the darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. This psalm shows that it begins with our children and our grandchildren. Evangelism of the gospel, the sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ that brings others to worship God for his goodness begins in our homes. It begins with one generation telling the next. It begins with us sharing with our children and our grandchildren the mighty deeds of our God. I think it goes without saying then that we should be regularly, daily reading the Bible with our children, praying with our children, discussing our faith with our children. We should be continuously discipling our children, diligently teaching them the things of God as Deuteronomy 6 states, when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. 
This means that we should be thinking about how our children are being educated in general. It could very well be that we are undermining what we are doing at home with what our children are doing outside of our homes. We spend so much time making sure our children are well educated, that they can read well and write well, that they know about math and science, social studies and history. We want their minds filled with the truths of this world. But we have utterly failed them if we neglect making it our priority to teach them the truth as the nucleus of all truth. It could be that what we are impressing on them is that they should learn all of these worldly truths, math, science, history, etc., and their study of God can be simply an afterthought tacked on to the end as though it isn't something they will be tested on it isn't something that will get them into the college of their choice or get them the career of their dreams as though we can learn math theorems and historical facts, as though we can understand phonics or the periodic chart just as well with or without God. As though it's not necessary to know God as the source of all truth. We don't mean to give them this impression, but it is what happens if God is never mentioned in their classrooms. And what we stress most in our homes is attainment of knowledge utterly disconnected from God. And the result is that when our kids leave to go to college, they leave the church as well. Dearly beloved, it is a time for us to consider how we don't simply give a passing glance to God in our children's education. We must ask ourselves seriously if they are being educated in a way that they understand, in a very deep and real way that God is at the center of our existence, that all truth is his truth, and that he is to be worshipped with all of who we are. Do they know the greatest pursuit of our lives is to live to the praise of his glory? Is it obvious to them that all of their studies are meant to help them to understand who God is in the realities of his creation, that they might worship him aright? Is it obvious to them that knowing God is the most important thing they will ever know? So whose care and instruction are we entrusting our children to, our grandchildren to? As John Calvin states about verse 4 of Psalm 145, here David insists upon the general truth that all men were made and are preserved in life for this end, that they may devote themselves to the praise of God. And notice that it is God's fame, God's renown that we should concern ourselves with that we should call our children and grandchildren to concern themselves with. Calvin continues. And there is an implied contrast between the eternal name of God and that immortality of renown which great men seem to acquire by their exploits. Human excellencies are eulogized in histories. With God, it stands differently. For there is not 
a day in which he does not renew remembrance of his works and cherish it by some present effect so as indelibly to preserve it alive upon our minds. For the same reason he speaks of the glorious brightness or the beauty of his excellence, the better to raise in others a due admiration of it. We can't ourselves chase after our own fame, our own renown. We can seek our own worldly glory. And we can teach our children and grandchildren to do the same. We can desire for them to be great in the world, to have others sing their praises and write them into the pages of history. Or we can make God's renown the aim of our lives. We can point to his glory. And we can teach our children and our grandchildren to do the same. We can desire for them to do great things for the Lord. To live lives that encourage others to sing his praise and tell of his great deeds throughout history. So I pray this morning that we would desire the right things for the generations to come. That we would teach them to worship the Lord, to make that the aim of their lives. Each generation must do its part. Each must contribute its chapter. And yet all, all the generations together will never be able to adequately praise God for all of his goodness. For he is indeed great and greatly to be praised. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. So we extol you, our God and our King. We bless your name forever and ever. Every day we will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. And Lord, grant that we would rightly worship you in spirit and truth. That we would worship you as... You have revealed yourself to be, and yet we would also come and sit in silent reverence before your mystery. And Lord, help us. Help us to pass worship from one generation to the next. That each generation may add to the chorus the saints who go before, giving you the praise that you are due. Until the end of the age and for all of eternity. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen.